0: Welcome to this episode of the Bluegrass Podcast. Today, we're talking with an incredible cultivator, community support, and my mentor, Sunshine Sarasada of Sumbolt. She's a wealth of information, a truly independent spirit, and small farm owner, and I can't wait to dive into this episode where we're going to be talking the current California cannabis market, her delicious and unique cultivars, and how to make your small farm sing with a special musical feature by Alex Teller with his song, Alberta. Let's jump right into it.
1: So, you grew up in Humboldt, which I think is different from a lot of people who have moved in there. What was it like growing up?
2: Growing up in Humboldt was... It was adventurous, exciting... It was great to be raised by rebels and to have a different perspective about society. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a really good childhood.
1: And what was it like coming up around weed all the time where like, even as a kid, I'm sure you were exposed to it on a level that most people wouldn't have been.
2: Yeah, the best part about that was that. um Because I grew up in a community of growers and everyone was growing, we were in this bubble where we didn't have to hide anything from each other. We didn't have to really hide the way how like if you were a kid who wasn't growing up in my community and your parents were growers, you had to lie to your friends. You couldn't bring them to your house. There was like all these issues and there was still some of that. But for the most part, we didn't have that. We were able to just play together, be in the field together, whatever. It was fine. Good to go.
1: And do you think like that's kind of the remoteness of it, like Humboldt, in it of itself, like just the fact that you were so far out there, you were able to do that, or like for people who maybe yeah. aren't familiar with Humboldt, why was it you were able to do that?
2: Yeah, the the topography definitely played a role in our isolation. I mean, just Humboldt County alone, and then once you get into Humboldt, it's just a lot of hills and mountains, and the to- topography is pretty there's just a lot to it like so um that had us isolated we were also i mean this was before no one had four wheel drive vehicles we didn't have there was no electricity we were just living a pretty basic life and isolated
1: so you went to school and like left for a bit right
2: a little bit you mean like uh, as like a young adult.
1: Yeah. Earlier on, what made like, did you always know you were going to come back or was it like you'll leave for a bit and see how you feel?
2: Well, it's funny because I only left, I mean, I left Southern Humboldt and moved to Arcata, which is still in Humboldt, but oddly enough, it still feels like I went somewhere else. (laughs) I traveled a little bit, uh, for like over a year um, when I was younger. And yeah, I did some other traveling when I was a teenager as well.
1: So what's the difference, like growing up around it then? And like, what was going on then versus like now where, you know, you have a legal market or a semi-legal market? Like, how has it changed?
2: Well, it's changed in the sense that It's just so much more commercial. When we started growing in the early 80s, it was, you know, it was craft just out of necessity. We didn't have all these products. We didn't have, there was like super soil. There was like one potting soil company, super soil or something. You know, they're like, there really wasn't any Mm -hmm. options. Like super soil, stetsman chicken manure or something and so we were just making our own compost and using leaf debris and kind of doing, growing under, not even really growing under the trees then because that was before camp but yeah, just out of necessity we were uh, growing organically.
1: And what was camp for people that might not know?
2: Uh, The camp... Pain against marijuana planting that was, I mean, it's just your livelihood feels like it's always feels like it's threatened. So they would start the first week of August and then they'd go all the way up, you know, up to about harvest early October. And so you never knew if you were, if they were going to come that day to your neighborhood and chop your crop or whatever. And so you just always felt like that. You always felt like that was a threat and, and it was aggressive and there was just no need to be hanging out of helicopters with guns and all of that.
1: And working at like KMUD and volunteering there, KMUD was like a part of helping out and the community was pretty involved in helping each other during that time, right?
2: Yeah, we did. We did help each other out. And KMUD definitely helped just because we were all isolated in our neighborhoods. And then KMUD brought us together in a sense because we could get news from other parts of the community. Community through our local news programming, but also just in in general, and Kmart also, you know, Kmart also was able to like alert us where the helicopters were that day. So then you'd know if you have, you know, if your friends were under threat that day, you would know it sooner than later.
1: And how do you think that changed things? Like sort of having you know, a community start to develop and then all of a sudden the raps start trying to get put on it really hard. Like how do you think that changed it from what maybe it might have been if it just been left alone?
2: Well, <laughs> it wasn't just just the helicopters, honestly. As the reputation of Humboldt grew. Our communities got started to get a little bit fragmented. So we started to get people who were maybe call them a little more thuggish, maybe call them a little more, they just didn't have the same community values that we have. And there were a couple of murders during that time. There was some people, there was, um, you know, some people had more issues around like cocaine was going on in the early eighties, drug use. And. So it wasn't really just camp as um, as people got greedy, the money and this and that, that kind of became more of became a problem, too.
1: Is it kind of like a double edged sword? Because you have, you know, great prices for weed, which lets you do all of these community projects, but then also having these other elements, too.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Do you, f- So here's a question: Like now that prices have dropped again, have you seen that move out at all, or has it just stayed?
2: You mean like the money, like the kind of commercial people? Um,
1: the thuggishness and the community element, both. But also, I mean, with commercialization coming in, how has that changed the dynamic? Because now you've got legal large money interests.
2: Yeah, I think that. There were just people in general who came with the green rush, including maybe some more thuggish types. But regardless, it was easy then during Prop 215 in the medical days and people got comfortable and complacent. And then when legalization came and you had to like just go through the struggles of being a startup in a startup industry with regulations that are constantly changing and it became really hard. Those those of us who've already had it hard were just like, oh, "Okay, this is I'm kind of used to this. It's already hard." Or like people who had it easy, it got hard and then they were like, "Okay, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm out." So that's, you know, just the strong people are still here and the weaker people have gone.
1: Did you always feel like you wanted to stick with cannabis for a living always or was there a point at which you were like it was always around but now I want to do it For a living and like make my living off of it, even in the legal market.
2: Yeah, I always wanted to grow all the time. I always wanted to have it be a part of my life. But in terms of like making a, you know, making a company out of it, that really started for me in, in 2015.
1: You ever miss just like, not like growing for fun, but just growing to grow versus like growing as a business?
2: Yes and no. Um, I enjoyed back in in the old days. I did enjoy the just the adventure of it, and and there was a playfulness and a fun to it that is kind of lacking now because it's more job. It's more like a job. It's more like work. So it's it's lose it's losing some of that element of just play and fun and adventure
1: have there been any benefits to it, like going into the structured industry that like you didn't have before on the other side?
2: Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I really look at it as a choice I made. I don't really feel like I was forced into legalization or anything. Um, I would say that the reason why I made the choice really is for the transparency in terms of being able to fully express myself and the craft and what I do and being able to have better control of my sales channels and my sales relationships. And yeah, just that aspect of the business, just being appreciated for for what I do.
1: And do you want to talk about like your farming style a little bit and how you go about like cultivating? Because everybody is so wildly different.
2: Yeah, I mean, of course, the dry farming that I got introduced to by my friend Jane over there in Shively at Alluvial Organics, that really, that really went well for me. It really just suited me as a farmer, just dry farming and having this hands-off approach and low inputs and low intervention and just letting the terroir really be expressed. I just felt, I just feel really grateful to have had that experience. And I would say that uh, with cultivation, that that really it's just the plants have so much to teach us rather, you know, rather we're smoking it and getting high and learning or rather we're just growing the plants and learning. I really enjoy working with the plant and all the lessons that there are to learn.
1: And what makes you want to do something like full term, which not a lot of people do, where you actually take the plant all the way through to the end, as opposed to, you know, someone doing a light depth or an indoor grow. Like, why do you look like taking it all the way to the end?
2: Well, part of it is just the focus of having one crop and the timing of that. The other part of it is that in the fall, there's just such a great chemistry going on. There's a lot of, everything's ripening and there's just all the ripening hormones are in the air, all the fruit falling from the trees and ripening, all the berries rotting on the vines, like whatever it is. And then it's just fall is in the air. And so I just really enjoy being a part of that natural cycle.
1: And do you feel like there's a ripeness that you get? From that, from growing in the sun and growing outdoor, that you don't get in light depth when you do it the same way, or maybe indoor? Or do you feel like it's just you personally prefer being outside?
2: I love being outside. And also, when you're doing a depth, you're generally under some kind of time constraints. You're either on like flip the crop, I got to get this harvested, and then I got to replant. And you're sort of more on that cycle instead of just. Watching the weather and being like, OK, I'm going to ripen more or this is good ripening weather. I'm going to leave things out and just being able to like really take your time with your harvest and not just kind of on this. OK, I got to cut and replant. And and I can't let these plants sit anymore. They got to get in the ground and whatever it is. So I just prefer to like work with nature.
1: Can you see a difference in the quality?
2: I can't really say for certain. Um, yeah, it's, you know, uh, there's plenty of really good light depth out there. It's just a matter of, uh, you know, if, yeah, I mean, it can age too. Light depth's fine. I don't really think there's that big of a difference, honestly.
1: And you also take kind of a unique approach to like your cultivars too. I think you spend a lot more time than most other people do, especially right now. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, sort of your process? and your cultivars that you do
2: oh yeah just like how I choose them
1: um well that's kind of like the question right not just how you choose them but I think how you keep choosing them and keep carrying them along because you put a lot more time in than other people do year over year
2: yeah I mean yeah I mean in terms of just having like a genetics program
1: yeah, you actually it feels like invests a longer period of time to see how things are developing rather than oh. just this is a random new thing. I'm gonna grow that new thing.
2: Yeah, I do take some time with that. Part of it is just being cautious because everything that's grown has to be represented and sold in some way, marketed in some way. Like it's just really important that it, you know, it's gonna pass through. Um and so yeah i'm i'm careful i try and really stay focused i really want the best representation of like a specific profile something along those lines um so i i'll do my own crosses i will take my time i will do some back crossing to stabilize before i make the final cross that i want to do and it's really hard to stay focused because it takes time you got to follow it through to to the end, you might have something good, and you might not even really know how good it is. So if you like just let it go too soon, you might miss it, you know? So sometimes you just got to keep growing something and sharing it and exploring it and checking it out. So um yeah, so I just work on a few different profiles. I like a lot of flavor, but recently I've been exploring more about different types of highs and crossing for that. And um yeah, um, just, just gotta take, I think it is better to take some time with it and make sure that what you got is, is really good.
1: And when you're going through what you have, your different cultivars or even variations in there is like, what are, so I heard you mention flavor and you kind of talked about high a little bit. What are some of the things where either you see it or you smell it or when you smoke it it jumps out at you? What are the things that you look for where you're like, oh, this says to me I want to pursue this further?
2: Yeah, that depends. Sometimes it's just a random intuitive spark of inspiration. And then other times it is something that I'm thinking about in terms of like how the flavors resonate, how they're going to blend together. Recently. I've been also um, super happy with the oil on the Delfina and the resin on that. Wow. Like I have this little finger hash ball and I just love it. I love the texture of it. It's just really, really good. And so when I cross, I'll be uh, thinking about kind of sweet and dry. So, you know, I'll find a sweet flavor profile of that cultivar and then I'll find a more savory i might run two lines a sweet and a s- sweet and dry so to speak i'll also look for something that's bold versus something that's complex and then i may cross those that may be my back cross or i also may run two separate lines of that so i'll find a male that's sweet and i'll find a male that's or i'll find a male that's bold and then a male a male that's complex and spicy and so i'll just kind of play around with those profiles
1: and do you want to talk about delphina a little bit and some of the other things that you have that you grow
2: yeah so i have primarily four right now and the delphina is it's my hash plant i made that for hash specifically and i'm really happy with it also, and that was pretty great too Yeah, yeah, that one is a cross of Purple Nepal, which is similar, has a similar profile to gelato. And then I cross that with something I call Rebel Moon, which is just a really oily, greasy kind of plant. And it's got some sweet notes, but also has some nice savory notes, too.
1: And do you want to talk about some of the other ones, like the loopy fruit, which I think probably oh, you're yeah. best known for?
2: Yeah, the loopy fruit is it's really good. And that one is a cross of Blackberry Kush and Willie's Wonder, which comes from Southern Oregon originally. And that original cross was made in Southern Oregon. Those were seeds that were given to me, and loopy fruit is actually a cutting selection I made. And so it's got it's got the fruit profile comes from the wonder or comes from the Williams Wonder. But then it has the bling from the Blackberry Kush, just really big, sparkly, beautiful resin. And that plant also grows. The bud structure comes from the Williams Wonder. And anyway, it's it's just a really nice plant. And then um The Wonderlust is a cross of Blue Dream and Agent Orange. And that one is just, it's like one of those little cocktail fruit cups. It's like the Orchard blend. There's like some pear. There's some peach. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you get a tropical note. Then, of course, there's the citrus. But um, that one, that one's pretty bold. It's got a lot of terpenes in there. It's got a lot of flavor.
1: It definitely feels and, like it has a different heart, too.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's why I called it wonderless. It was like, I'm not really like a wake and bake kind of person, but the first time I made that cross and I had the seeds, I actually planted them in the winter and then I was blooming it in the spring. And it was I. It was like eight in the morning and I went up to the dry rock and I took I took it off the dry rack and just, like, rolled a joint and, like, smoked it. Like, I was, like, so excited. And then I went for a walk, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is a nice kind of, kind of wonderless sort of herb. So, uh, yeah, that one's tasty. And then the Redwood Summer is, that has, like, a tree kind of profile. It's got, like, it's got a little bit of, like, Mexican sweetbread, freshly cut lumber. Maybe a little hint of patchouli and also another, just a really nice smoke.
1: And you have these sort of like set things in your stable. How do you decide to make a change or add something else in or keep them the same?
2: Yeah. So, um, I generally have an idea of where I want something to go. So um, or what I want it to, to represent. And um so like the Wonderlust is, I think it's pretty good on its own. I don't have any plans to like add something to that and still call it Wonderlust. If I cross it with something else, I'm gonna make something totally different with it. Um, but it's just based on like a, a profile. So so the, to me, I define the genetics by like what I'm looking for, what what the representation is of that genetic. And then as long as I fulfill that, then I fulfill that. So say I like find the other thing about the wonderlust that I really like are these peachy. I really like the peach tones. So let's just say I found another genetic that also had a lot of peach. I might be like, okay, I'm going to cross it with that and like enhance the peach because the peach... For me, is what defines Wonderless. So as long as I'm like still within that how I define it, then yeah, I'll cross it with something else if I think I need to.
1: And do you sort of think of the different ones in different ways? Like the idea of what it is, can that be different from each one to each one? Or is that like a uniform criteria?
2: Well, I do want them to be different from each other. So I don't want to like take, say the same male and cross everything with it. Like I want them to be very distinctive from from each other and on the market. So that's, that's the challenge.
1: And do you find it's easy or difficult to get away from the market?
2: For me, it's easy.
1: Why do you think that is? Just because a lot of people have trouble and maybe follow the market as their first move. Why do you think it's easier for you to go in your own direction?
2: Because I'm not so hung up on appearance because appearance doesn't really get you high. So what's the big deal about appearance?
1: So what would So why do you think people look at appearance as much then when it doesn't really impact like the experience of the user?
2: It's just for sales, really, especially for, like, bulk sales. It's just for sales. That's all.
1: The bag appeal? Yeah. So how do you educate your customers or the people you're trying to sell to to get that point across? Or do you think it's just people who are already there are the people who are going to consume your weed?
2: Yeah, I just have a little bit of confidence. So I go for it. Um, I kind of rely more on my packaging too. I think it's really important to have good packaging. You want packaging that can sell itself, honestly. I mean, because that's the only real thing you got going that people can actually see, right? You know, besides the herb. So I feel I kind of put my focus on that instead of like, how my crosses turn out or in terms of like what they look like um so it also you know it depends on the you're hoping that the shops are thinking a little bit like you where they're like oh yeah I want diversity or I have so many different types of customers to fulfill or this and that so you hope they're also thinking about diversity as well
1: do you feel like it'd be easier if you could sell it yourself or do you feel like it's easier selling to a dispensary and then having them sell it?
2: Direct sales would be amazing. That would be amazing because for one thing, just being able to communicate so directly with your consumers is its such good external feedback. And it's also its particularly important for people who are medicating and looking for medicine because if something that you have works for them they don't even care about anything else but that one thing that's it that's all they care about because that's what works for them they all ignore everything else they won't even smoke anything else it's crazy but they really need that you know what I mean like that's what they need to feel good for a few hours a day and now that's not crazy that's what's important to them so yeah just being able to To provide that and be able to communicate directly with consumers would be really important. Very helpful.
1: So, and I think like everything you said is correct, but why do you think it's been so hard or states have not gone to that model of more like a farmer's market or like any other plant or agricultural good?
2: Well, for some reason, they seem to put more trust in distributors and retailers than in cultivators, which is. Really sad. Do
1: you have any ideas about like why that is, but also, I mean, what are some of the problems with that?
2: Well, if they just don't really trust us with our own products, so to speak. And so they don't really want to let us sell it ourselves. I think also I think also everyone's just trying to get their hand in it and take a piece of it. So that's the other part of it is they want to just, everyone wants to have a piece of it, but no one really wants the risk and no one wants the liability. And that is what's falling on the farmers. So we're the creditor, we have the risk, we have the liability, we carry so much more of the burden of everything. And like, and everyone's making money off of us. And so eventually you start to look around and be like, well, who's making money off of me? What's going on? All these jobs that are created, all the stuff that's created around this industry, it wouldn't be here without farmers. And even though people know that, and even though politicians know that, they're still not making it easier for us.
1: And we talked about sort of direct to patient, direct to consumer sales. What are some other things that you think could be changed or that? if they were changed would help you or your farm and your cultivation?
2: Well, I think, well, the direct sales is pretty huge, but the regulations are, are quite burdensome. So like one of the things that you really rely on as a farmer is your flexibility and how well you adapt and the best farmers can do that very well. And What's happening is that with these regulations, it's like you're farming with a straight coat or no. it's like you're farming with an ankle bracelet, so to speak, right? So you have to report to the state on every single change on your farm. If you want to take out a greenhouse and put in a hoogle bed and be all cool like that up, nope, you got to go through the state. you got to wait for all these approvals just to make the right choice. So that's sorry, let me. So that's what's really hard.
0: And I wanted to get your thoughts
1: on like limited licensing and unlimited licensing too.
2: As far as like that goes, I don't really know how I feel about that. I don't really feel that that affects me so much. I don't, I mean, I just kind of do my own thing. I don't really worry about anybody else.
1: I meant more like in terms of like you've kind of talked about like the community. So, like, how does who's allowed to grow filter into that? Because, like, with is it Lighthouse that has like the craft at scale where they sort of have a bunch of people feeding in?
2: Oh, you mean um, Glasshouse?
1: Glasshouse, yes. Versus yeah, like actually they're... having small farms.
2: Yeah, I mean, having the small farms is important for just diversity and culture in particular and for cultivating culture um but as far as like yeah i mean it, you want to build you want there to be as much access as possible so so what that means is that um yeah that really you know it makes more sense to have more smaller licenses out there and less big ones but you know you can't you got to think about access to medicine and access to medicine at, at affordable pricing and that there's something to be said for that so glass house well it's not really such a good model for california we have a lot of small crowd of farmers you know when when glass house can export out of state They're going to be giving people across the country really good herb for a pretty good deal. I mean, it's, you know, they'll have something decent coming out of California. So, I mean, that's not, that's not a horrible thing, really.
1: And do you feel like, because I know that there used to be like a one acre cap, right? Where people could only grow up to an acre. Do you feel like that changed anything at all where everybody was small?
2: Yeah, that one acre cap thing was kind of, you know, it never actually really happened. Like it was written into MRSA originally to the state regulations. And then when Prop 64 and the initiative passed and then things they had to cross over things from the state to Prop 64 and kind of mesh those two things. I don't really know where our trade group was. I don't really know who, why, what happened, but for whatever reason, an like acre cap never, you've never even made it into Prop 64. And so that was something that I feel like maybe we're somewhat responsible for that, for letting that happen, but it happened. And I personally, I don't really know how much of a difference that really would have made. It takes um yeah. Uh I'm I'm not really yeah, I'm I'm not really sure if it really would have made a big difference.
1: Like, do you feel like things would have started to get rapidly consolidated anyways or like it wouldn't have been able to be enforced or
2: yeah I mean if you look at just there's just so much you want to call it greed or whatever you want to call it, like so many people are after chasing the money. Like, really? You think an acre cap is going to stop that? Really? I don't think so. The culture of greed around this is just really obnoxious. And I really don't think an acre cap would have really stopped that. I mean, it's a nice dream, but I don't think it would have been real.
1: So Humboldt has had a really huge decrease in the amount of small farmers. Are there any deep, like we've talked about regulations and we've talked about, you know, community and different things like that. How do you support small farms? How do you work that back and grow them?
0: And I don't mean like
1: grow the size of each small farm, but like, how do you grow more small farms?
2: Well, that, you know, that, that would mean, that would mean starting your own brand. And that would mean marketing your own brand. And that's a lot that, that's a lot of work. And I'm not saying not to do it because your survival depends on it. But um but the way how you get like you need the way how they set it, it, it might not be, it's just it's it's a whole nother business to start up that front end of the business and the sales. And so it, it's a lot because we've been learning about compliance. The regulations keep, have been, you know, they, they were always changing. It was just a lot to adapt to getting, getting your farm permitted. It's just it's just a lot. There's, there's a lot to learn, a lot of new skills. And then this is like starting a whole new business on top of that. So um, it is discouraging, but it's also very, very rewarding. So this is where with a brand, this is where I do what I want to do. No one tells me what to do. I just do what I want to do. And so there's real freedom in that. And I just, I really flourish in it and I really love it. But maybe it's not for everyone. But if you're small, you might want to be considering that. Um, I also think that to support small farms, when you want to shop for your herb, like you would go shop for a bottle of wine. You 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 want to ask questions. You want to ask well, questions about location. Where was this herb growing? Because you'll find out that there's cultural things about that. There's terroir type reasons for that. And you also want to know and understand like who grew it. What are some of the values behind that? And how authentic does that come across? And Yeah. So those are just like, you know, you just want to think about it like you're buying a
1: a bottle of wine. And when you talk about like authentic values, do you mean like, what kind of do you mean in that? Like in business and cultivation?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I just meant like that the authenticity of those values really comes through across the brand and the product and everything. So that can be things like a lot of people out there that really love this plant very deeply. Like they really, really care about it a lot. And they, they themselves, maybe they've never grown it. They don't, they don't know anything about growing it. And they just want the person who grew it to also love the plant as much as they do.
1: Do you think that ever, I don't want to say like gets missed at all, but Do you feel like maybe that's the same problem that other farmers have where it's about that education of consumers about what the product quality is and sort of the value of an agricultural good? Because I feel like in the U.S. especially, we really just don't appreciate or maybe put the same value on that as other countries do with like more developed quality markets, kind of like talking about wine.
2: Yeah, well, a lot of that has to do with the retailers because they have more access to our consumers than we do. We can tell the consumers all day long, I'm growing the hippie love button, look at my beautiful farm, and on and on. You tell them all day long about this, but like, you know, they still have to go to a shop to go get it. So um, it's just, it's really the shops. are getting in the way of us and our customers. They are not necessarily giving us representation. And that is a challenge. There's only so many shops. And there's really only so many shops that even really pay their bills. On top of it all, more or less, even having your values and even giving you good representation. they are only few and far in between. And you can lose your business real quick if you get in the, you start selling to the wrong people and they're not paying you. You have a lot of costs, like all the way up from like growing it to the processing, to the packaging, everything just to get it market ready and then get it to the market. And then you sell it to a shop and then they don't pay you. And now how many accounts you got that aren't paying you and what's going on? Like that can just sink you. So it's it's a really a big challenge. So like, it's just important that we have shops and we have retailers that will give us our, that are willing and want to represent us. The thing is about being a craft farmer and having a craft product is that many times your craft product doesn't sell itself. It comes with a story like wine. And if you don't have someone there who wants to take the time with a customer to tell them that story, then your product might just get passed over. So there's a real joy in my mind on selling craft and telling that story, but not all the shops see it that way.
1: It feels like we kind of came full circle there back to like direct to patient, consumer, back to small farms and being able to tell that story yourself.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's good. But yeah, it is. It is important to, to tell, tell your story.
1: And bringing that brand identity back in as well with that, like small farmers, do you think that maybe is like. People should think of it that way. Your brand is the story of your product.
2: Yep, 100%. And then your brand needs to match that story.
1: So what would you say to maybe a small farmer who's not in cannabis, but wants to be in cannabis, who has the cultivation experience, has the farm, has the infrastructure, but now they want to grow cannabis as a crop? What sort of advice would you give them about like developing a brand identity? Or do you think it's good to just incorporate it into the one they might already have for vegetables and their other products?
2: Yeah, your your brand story, I would like, I mean, I would go pretty deep on this one. This is like a lot of self-discovery, self-exploration. This is where you might want to you know you might want to take a moment to go in the cave so to speak like you might want to meditate on this one a lot and really think about think about what you represent think about what you want your the values behind your brand and what they represent and who do you want to attract to you and make it something that's true to you and don't be afraid like when i made my brand i pretty much made a brand that i could sell to myself so i mean and I think that that's okay. Like some people might tell you like, no, don't make a brand to sell to yourself, but you know yourself better than anybody else. So you got to take that into consideration.
1: I think also like you're talking about selling to yourself, how many people are you trying to sell to, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. So that focused demographic, your target demographic, the more focused you are, it's really tempting as a brand to be like, I want to satisfy everyone. I want to satisfy everyone. But it's actually, you're actually stronger the more focused you are. So you want to resist that whole taking a broad sweep. And you really want to just do your best to stay as focused as you can.
1: And what are some ways maybe or some advice that you could give about like staying focused and how to stay focused? Like, is that not just in branding and imaging, but like in products or in technique or? how do you keep that consistency
2: yeah you want to do it throughout everything really so if you have once you have your kind of your 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 target customer and you have your values in place then staying focused it's it is important because it will maintain you'll maintain your authenticity And you'll maintain your quality, and you just want there to be no question about who you are and what you represent and what you do.
1: Especially in this industry, do you think it also maybe helps with credibility as well?
2: Yeah, yeah, it can help for sure.
1: And I mean that less about like, I am a professional, whoever, but more about like, kind of like you're talking about verifying. And keeping an authentic supply chain, the more you invest in that direction, the more people understand the direction you're going in.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They, because you know who you are. And that helps a lot. I'm a cold. shelter from the storm when those chilly winds it blow the moon. Always kept me warm
1: With your products, you know, kind of like we're talking about having a focus, do you feel like you focus on certain products more than others or that you sort of specialize in a certain area of cannabis products?
2: Not exactly, actually. <laughs> I don't exactly, I mean, no, not quite. I just, I love, I do love product development, I do love crafting. I do love just curating an awesome experience. um so yeah, I mean I I tend to cover a few things. I'm not I, I wouldn't say that I lack focus, but because each product development takes quite a bit of focus. so it's not like I have it's not like I'm running around working on all these products. I stay focused on which ones I'm going to work on so I follow them through.
1: So more like you have some, you have a cultivar that you like, what product direction it can go in rather than like, I have products I specialize in. I'm going to fit the cultivars into that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a perfect way to say it. So like I, yeah, so it depends. Um, on what you got, like the Delfina being such a hash maker, like what's the best expression of Delphina? Well, you know, it does burn pretty good as a flower, but dang, it's exceptional hash. So maybe that's the best expression of that. And then you take something like, like the Wonderless, which is just so incredibly terpy. And, and maybe the best expression of that is like making essential oil or, or maybe, maybe, you know, Maybe it can be made into a rosin, maybe you know, but there's just, or the other thing about the Wonderless is it, it's really a nice one. It complements food well. So like if you add it fresh into food, you add the flavor into food. It's just, it's wonderful. It's like adding garlic. It just, it extends the finish. It's just, it's really another great, it's a great one for food. So yeah, it just depends on like what the best expression is either of that flavor profile or that cultivar. You want to consider that.
1: And kind of like you're talking about bringing in food, and we've talked about wine a little bit. How do you feel about I think the wider conversation of not just cannabis on its own in a jar, but as a complement to an experience, an event like a plus one?
2: Oh, you mean how how you experience it with food?
1: Um, so I think more like. For farmers and in general, people in different communities being able to say, oh, you're not just, you know, you don't just have to sell it as a product on the shelf, but if you're allowed to also host like a tasting event, how does that change your dynamic as a farmer or just what you're able to do?
2: Oh, yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. You can give people so many great experiences that they've never had with herb and never even really thought of having. That's super fun. I really enjoy that a lot.
1: I feel like it also changes the business of it, like kind of getting into the area of tourism and events, like as a farmer, you can take the extra time and do this value added service where you can make it affordable for yourself.
2: Yeah, yeah, you sure can. But like here with the regulations, it's just it's not really something that you can do easily. Right before, before legalization and Prop sixty four, we had these like farmers markets, and I loved it. I made fresh infused cannabis food. It didn't really get you high, but it tasted amazing, and I, I'd, I'd, I'd pair it with wine sometimes. Like I just, I really enjoyed it immensely. Really
1: did. So how would you change if you sort of like if you have the wand and you can just make the decisions to change things, how would you like to be able to implement these events? Do you think it should be in like, kind of like you mentioned, a farmer's market in a controlled area? Should you be allowed to do it on the farm? What does that look like?
2: Yeah, yeah, both would be great. You Have a little farm stand and, and give people an experience. That would be great. And then for events, the farmers markets are wonderful, really good, good to have. So I think like just having those farm farmer markets, you can they can either be their own event or you can tag them on to other events. But that's really just a great way to um to get to know get to know the farm and the farmer and what they grow.
1: So I also wanted to ask you maybe about like the question of scale in all this, where it's, if you're allowed to do direct-to-consumer, direct events, how much weed do you need to grow to make this financially viable? And like not counting stuff like these corner case like, exotics, where it's like, oh, I'm going to sell it for $1,200 an ounce or whatever. The standard farmer, let's yeah. say.
2: Yeah, I mean, you ought to be able to make a living on 2,000 square feet and 5,000 square feet and being able to do that yourself. Even at 10,000 square feet, you can keep it a family farm. And it's not like you really need a lot. If if you're turning it into something and packaging yourself and selling it, you want to get all that margin. So you want to, I mean, you can do all all right for yourself.
1: Do you think that'll change over time like as prices change or do you think like that's a sustainable one where like you could keep that for you know how long do you well, think
2: Well you don't really worry so much about the prices when you have a brand and you and you have your own package it's really the prices only like in the bulk market the prices on the shelf have been staying pretty steady for a while even with Glasshouse because fortunately they're not undercutting like they could Maybe they will soon. I'm not sure, but I am thankful they're not undercutting. <laughs> um, uh, Yeah. So, you know, once you're in a brand and you got your jars, your, your price per pound goes up substantially and it can stay at that price all year.
1: And do you feel like there's any sort of like, I don't want to say difficulty, but any sort of change because of the harvest cycle where it's, oh, you're in October to November, there's a huge flood of product? Or do you feel like it's metered, meted out enough to where you can keep it constant?
2: Yeah, you're not a part of that. You're just packaging and selling. Like You don't really worry about those fluctuations.
1: If people wanted to buy your products or buy your weed how or find out more about you, where can they do that? What? Are some social media platforms they could follow?
2: Yeah, thank you. Uh, You can find Sunbolt Growing on Instagram. And you can also go to my website at www.sunbolt.com and learn a bit more about me, what I do, and my cultivars.
1: Oh, I forgot to ask this. I was... About to like start to close up, but you actually do a little bit of exclusivity and a little bit of deliberation with like who you choose in your retail partners. How do you go about that? And what are some areas they can find you into?
2: Yeah. So I, I look for, I want, you know, I'm, I'm an independent farmer. I want to work with independent shops that are going to give me good representation and exclusivity is, is important. Um, exclusivity means that, you know, they don't, there's, they don't have to worry about my brand showing up across the street or anywhere else that they have no competition to encourage them to really get behind my brand. Um, so that, that, that exclusivity, it, it can be helpful, but it can also be difficult because they may not want to, they may not be sure if they really want to commit to you at that level. So sometimes you got to work with them for a little bit and then be like, hey, you know, do you want to do this or not? You know.
1: I was going to say, and how do you go about educating staff? Because I think especially at the retail level, the turnover can be just insane. How do you keep up with making sure that the dispensary stays informed about your products so that they can help the customer?
2: Yeah, the first part is to make sure they actually get to partake in the samples that you leave with the retail shop and sometimes they actually have a say in what goes on the shelf and every single shop's different right? so how to approach people and how to to get them behind your brand and give representation can be difficult and that's where that's where it helps to have good packaging that's where it helps to have a pretty good brand story so um um ed- education it it Yes, it can be challenging, especially because up here in Humboldt, we're so isolated. So just to get just a pound of pavement, just to get into some shops, it's not easy. It's like a five hour, you know, four or five hours just to get to the Bay Area. So it's like doing a sales trip. It's not that easy. It's not like being in the city where you can just have your circuit and go to your shops and this and that. No, you're like farming way away from everything. And so the education is challenging.
1: Are there any avenues you found that have made it easier, not just with, like, product samples, but, like, just having a presence that people can find out about you through?
2: Um. Yeah, I mean, of course, any kind of media coverage is helpful. And and networking and meeting people in general, it just... Wanting to educate them in general, not even necessarily about your product or about your brand, but just about urban in general, just to spark their curiosity, really.
1: And what are some of the things that you educate people about just out of curiosity? Like what are sort of some of the things you talk to them about where it's maybe an uneducated consumer, you're not trying to sell them on the brand, but you're just trying to make them a better consumer?
2: Yeah, bringing awareness around terroir and around location, and then having some curiosity to try something that's dry farmed, and uh, also just about educating them on this low-intensity agriculture. I think it really surprises people when they see a field with just herb that's just growing there like corn. And then they're like, what? Where's your greenhouses? Where's all your infrastructure? Where's you're like, no, I don't don't need any of that. And that can be a bit of a surprise to people actually see how just the simplicity is um, educational.
1: That's been one of the crazy things, I think, like you're talking about cultivation methods. When we legalize, we've done it to where it's all indoor now. But people have also been growing hemp for cannabinoid production for like a few years now. So it's like, mm-hmm. no, we've already been doing that. We're just kind of putting a weird imaginary line there. But do, do you want to talk some more about like your cultivation methods? Like you said, draft farming. What sort of, what? how is that different from what other people do? What goes into that that makes it draft farming?
2: Yeah, so that is having being in the right location with the right kind of soil. So we have a clay loam here and you just get the best qualities of clay. And it just, the water, it's not that the roots are going down to the water. It's that the water is actually coming up to the roots. The roots actually grow fairly shallow, I believe. And um, I mean, the water comes pretty close to, to the surface. So having that, Just this unique location, and then, um, let's see. Yeah, just, just, yeah, just the location.
1: Do you do any like amendments, or are you like no amendments or sprays, or like, especially since you're full term and you sort of are taking so much risk that something might happen to your crop? What do you do taking it through that really long term cycle?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, starting off with just my nursery, I may even overwinter some nursery, some, I may overwinter some plants. And so that's where I'll do quite a bit of my tinkering and whatnot is during that nursery phase. If I'm going to tinker, I'll, I'll, um, I'll add some, you know, I'll, I'll use because it's cold in the winter, there's some, you know, more specific nutrient needs. A little bit of phosphorus can help give them some energy when it's cold. And I'll do a little bit of silica. But, yeah, so there's some things I'll do over the winter. And then, but then once they're in the ground, I do very, very little. I don't really add much to the soil. Um, Cover crops are always good. I'd like to explore the use of, like, wood chips and basically recreating a forest soil. I haven't really done much with that, but I'd like to. Um, you can you can condition your soil with, like, some bi- biochar. Um, as far as, like, the sprays go, I've started playing around with, like, ferments, which I kind of like because it keeps the terroir story going. Um, I really like nettles. I have a recipe for that that actually turns out so good I can actually drink it. And I started um, horsetail last year and then this year i'm now looking at my comfrey and i'm like oh yeah i need, need to do a comfrey ferment and so i've been i've been playing around with those and and spraying with that
1: and before i let you go for this interview were there any projects that you wanted to let people know that like are going to be coming out things to look for drops that are coming soon
2: yeah, well, hopefully I'll be getting some Delfina out at some point. Um, it's just such—I really am excited to share that. I'm really excited to see how people respond. And aside from that, I have other genetics I'm working on that I'm excited for. We'll see how they do in my R and D. And I'm also really excited about working on these hash infused pre rolls and like this combination of. Essential oil and hash and flour and just how to make that really exceptional. So that's something else that will be coming out here soon.
1: Those pre-rolls slapped. They were incredible. I can't wait. Yeah, well that's
2: out. that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. I'm I'm really looking forward to just really develop taking those a lot further.
1: Sunshine, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. And just good luck with everything in Kentucky, with medical and legalization, and just doing it right.
0: Thank you for stopping by for this episode of the Bluegrass Podcast. If you'd like to help us out, please drop a rating on iTunes or Spotify, or give us a follow on one or all of your preferred listening platforms. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're at Bluegrass Podcast on Instagram at Bluegrass Canna on Twitter, at Bluegrass Hemp on Facebook, at Bluegrass Cannabis on YouTube, and if you'd like to find out more about Bluegrass Cannabis or want merch with our Bluegrass Banjo logo, you can find it on our website, bluegrasscannabis.com. Thank you for listening to the Bluegrass Podcast. Old-fashioned, all-natural, Kentucky Bluegrass.